Welcome to Dragon Talk. I'm Greg Tito, and I'm joined by... Shelly. Hi, Shelly. How you doing? Good. Good. Did you know that uh, uh, I have your husband in my phone as uh, Bart Mazanoble? Do you really? Yes. Do you know that at daycare, our son is named Quinn Mazanoble? What is his actual last name? Is it Quinn Carroll? Yeah, it's Carroll. Oh. I mean... It's not hyphenated? No. Too long. It is quite long. If he ever became a professional athlete, he'd have like... Carol Mazanoble. He would. Yeah. He'd have to drop the Carol, clearly. Exactly. But it's really fun to hear Quinn tr- say Mazanoble. Like, he knows my name. Oh. I don't know how he actually knows my whole name. The first time I got home from work one day and my, like, two-year-old said, I'm Edna Jane Tito. And I was like, <gasps> what? How'd you, you're oh. a genius. How did someone how know, you your know your name? That? How do you know your name? How and Aaron's like, we've been teaching her all day. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, that makes sense then. Does she ever call you Greg? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Fiona now will be like... Your name is Greg, but I call you Daddy. Oh, and I'm like, yes, that's right. Yeah. And Mommy's name's Aunt, and she like goes through the whole thing. Yeah, it's just kind of weird. To sometimes hear. I call her Mama or Mommy. I'm like, oh, that's true. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Gotta have options. Gotta have different character names. Yeah. Uh, Yesterday we picked up Quinn from a play date. They were playing hide and seek, mm-hmm. and Quinn comes running out of the room and he goes, "Yeah, let's go find Bart." <laughs> I'm like, who Bart? What? Yeah. You mean your dad? <laughs> You want to go find your dad? He's like, yeah, Bart. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It is weird when they're like, oh, yeah, you're a real person. Yeah. 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 But like, his friends call us Bart and Shelly. Mm-hmm. That is weird to me to have three-year-olds calling me by my first name because we didn't do that. When we were three, everybody was Mrs. Tito. Right. Mr. Marth. Mr. Marth. Mr. Marth. But now the kids are just like, yeah, you're Shelly. What? Yeah. Not Miss Shelly. I'm just Shelly. Is that not weird? Is that not weird to anyone but me? I think it was back then, but now I've gotten so used to it. Like, I have neighbors who's like a 10-year-old, and he's like, hey, Greg. And I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? See, that feels even weirder. It's almost weirder than... Yeah, but I have... I mean, I treat kids like normal people. They're not normal people. (laughs) That's your problem. I mean, he and I talk about games all the time and what he's playing and what I'm playing. So it's like... I certainly don't feel old enough to be... Mrs. Mazanoble. Mrs. Mazanoble. That's my mom. I like putting the blay at the, the blay, end. The yes. blay, Is that all right? I go for it. All right, cool. Whatever. I call Are you, you excited for uh, this month for Widow's Walk to be coming out? Yes. I am too. It's like, I just feel like I'm 39 weeks pregnant. Is that weird? That's, that is a bit <laughs> odd. That you have a square-shaped <laughs> expansion for Betrayal on House yeah, on the Hill. Yeah, and I only gained like in your four stomach. pounds or something. <laughs> <laughs> All that cardboard is very yeah. pointy. Ooh, owies. Not yeah. good. Um, but yes, it's next Friday. Wow. Oh, wait. We're in the future? We're in the future. I think this is it's gonna out. Be, it's going to be next week. So yeah. It's probably out. Tomorrow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah October 14th, right? Yeah. And it's been October 14th. Yes. It's been almost a full, a, whole, a little over a year that we even just began talking about this. It's amazing. To see the whole like full circle. Here it is. It's happening. Yeah. All right. You've Um, been doing some great blog posts on the uh, Facebook page. Widow's Talk. Widow's Talk. Yes. Join us on our Avalon Hill Facebook page. Yeah. And you can read uh, the Widow's Talk blogs under the notes section. Sweet. Which is actually a really cool feature. That is a sweet feature. I didn't know that happened. Yeah, it's cool. We have um, a lot of the contributors have been writing about their experience, how their haunt came to be. Um, Rob Daviau just wrote a blog post for us because he was um, at Hasbro when Betrayal first was came, being developed. Yeah, yeah, first developed, and how he realized from a very early moment that this game was going to be special. 
It is special. Yeah, yeah. it is special. And it's just in time for uh, kind of all the Halloween horror-themed it's, stuff that's going on. Yep, already seeing a lot of that. A lot of Perfect people are timing. talking about, we're going to be playing for our Halloween yeah. game days. Other Halloween stuff going on is uh, uh, Dice Camera Action yeah. uh, is still going strong with Cursive Strahd. The Waffle Crew has been going through there every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time on our uh, D&D Twitch channel. So awesome. go check out Chris Perkins and... Uh, that crew, he's been playing Strahd a lot, playing up the whole vampire evil thing, and uh, it's kind of making me not very comfortable around Chris, to I know. be honest. I know. You well, did, know. did you notice like how quickly he wrote that adventure? Yeah, it, like you know, he's talked many times, even on this podcast, about yeah. how it was so easy for him to jump mm-hmm. into that role, mm-hmm. which is a bit disturbing if a you think bit, about it. A little bit. He may be a vampire. Have some vampire in him. He may be Strahd. He may actually. Have just you ever be seen Strahd. the two of them in the same place? Uh, yes. At the same time? He, well, yes, because he embodies it so much. Like yeah. Over at TwitchCon mm-hmm. uh, a couple uh, weeks ago, he actually drew, uh, dressed as Strahd. It was crazy. Are you serious? Yeah, in their uh, in their live session, it was amazing. Uh, so go check that out every week, and of course, Storm King's Thunder is still. Out in stores, we're gearing up for Volo's Guide to Monsters. Now that's going to be awesome. And the next issue of Dragon Plus is also coming out in October, which has some ways that you can integrate... Uh, uh, the trail at House on the Hill in your D&D game. Exactly. God, you read, you're reading my mind. I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So check out all that stuff. Uh, yes. And of course, uh, if you have a moment on iTunes and Google Play, you can uh, rate and review uh, our, this Dragon Talk podcast and get more people interested in this amazing Habe. Habe. Yes, it's pronounced that way from now on. Oh, right. Yes. Habe. Habe. Uh, You're so classy. And uh, before we go to our interview with Chris Funk and Keith Baker, uh, Chris Funk is the guitarist from the band called The Decemberists, and he made a game uh, where actually they, well, we'll hear all about what they did, but they're basically having a game now on Kickstarter uh, that is pretty fascinating. So I can't wait to hear from that, as well as Keith Baker, the designer, creator, auteur behind uh, Eberron, the Eberron setting. Also a Widow's Walk contributor. Also a Widow's Walk contributor. Yes, yep. there's so much synergies I know, happening. I know, it's just nuts. And uh, yeah, so that's going to be fascinating in that interview. But before we do that, we're going to get to some lore you should know with Mr. Chris Perkins. Okay, good. Let's jump to that. Bam. Welcome to another segment of Lore You Should Know. Uh, I am joined uh, by Mr. Chris Perkins. Hello. Hi there. We are sans Matt Cernet today. Uh, he's uh, gallivanting uh, across Scotland and England, uh, but he will come back soon and I'm sure tell us all the tale mm-hmm. if he survives. About all the monsters that About. he met. <laughs> exactly. Including perhaps maybe a uh, inspiration for a mind flare. Yes, one of one of the D and D classic, most iconic monsters. I know those those quivering tentacles underneath the mouth just really just driving yes. nuts. Mind flayers, also known as illithids. So, where uh, yes, what can you tell us about illithids and or illithids and where they where they came from in D and D lore? So, uh, originally, the term illithid did not exist when Gary Gygax created mind flayers for the first edition monster manual. He was drawing inspiration from Lovecraft, um, which is cited in the original uh, Dungeon Master's Guide as one of Gary's influences on mm-hmm. D&D. Um, and, uh, monstrous races. Uh, uh. Yes. And what's un- what was unusual about them, um, apart from their Lovecraftian nature, was that they were tied to one of the 
I want to say, um, optional systems of early D&D, which was the psionics system. Mm. So they were uh, a, an example of a psionic monster. And there weren't a ton of them in the earliest days of the game. And psionics was essentially uh, uh, powers... Powers of the mind. That you couldn't explain through magic only. Exactly. It was, it was this weird, in some cases, uh, somewhat intrusive sci-fi element mm. in what was otherwise a classic medieval fantasy game. And I think that's part of the Mind Flayer's appeal is that they sort of sit at the edge of what medieval fantasy was is typically um, and almost have a Victorian slash Lovecraftian slash science fiction feel to them. Uh, they can change the complexion of a campaign pretty quickly. When to introduce them, all, all yes. everything goes to shit. And the name Elithid came up in second edition, um, and uh, when the when they uh, mind flayers got the attention they were due in a product by Bruce Cordell called the Elithiad, mm. which was a, sort of a landmark product. Um, in the days of TSR because it was a book wholly dedicated to a particular monster. And it talked about the ecology of the Elithids and where they come from and what they want um, to a level of detail that had never really been done before. Now, before, before we move on, I'm talking more about their ecology, which I know is, is super fascinating. Uh, was the introduction of the name uh, to um, be able to copyright it? Was it a trademark thing when that mind flayers were too generic of a term or, or, or do you have any insight in that? Um, I don't have a tremendous amount of insight. My speculation is that when you, it, you don't imagine that mind flayers call themselves mind flayers. Mm. Um, I think that the, the creation of a lithid was a way to say, this is what mind flayers call themselves. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. And so the, uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but the Ithiliad, or say oh, one more Alithiad? Alithiad. Yes. Uh, which is a wonderful play on yes. the, the Iliad, which yes. I love. Uh, was, it, was it a, a tome that they would have written themselves in a way? Uh, it's, I think uh, the Alithiad is framed as a, a tome written by those who had studied the creatures, not the creatures themselves. And the reason I say that is because... Elithids generally don't write books. Oh, um, they do have a sort of braille-like script that they use to convey ideas, um, but they're not ones for actual bookmaking because they can just communicate through telepathy. Thought. Yeah, exactly. They are telepathic uh, creatures who um, can send out shock waves of psionic energy to stun creatures around them just long enough that they can fasten their tentacles to your head, crack open your skull and suck your brains out. And, and feeding on brains is what they do. That's their thing. Um, the other thing that they do is they create new mind flares and they have, they're asexual. They have no means of natural propagation. What they do is they plant a tadpole in a humanoid host that they haven't killed. That tadpole works its way into the brain and begins a process called seromorphosis, which is the physical transmutation of the host into a mind flayer. So mind flayers are made out of humanoids. That's how they create more. That's how they create more. Ugh. Other ideas that the Alithiad introduced was the concept of the elder brain, which is that mind flayers um, uh, have, they, they grow 
a, a gigantic brain in a vat or a brine pool, uh, that brain becomes enormous in size and then controls or dominates the colony. Um, and one of the interesting, I want to say, uh, maybe paradox isn't the right word, but alithids, mind flayers, they are supremely intelligent beings and they value their autonomy. And the fact that they live in a society where they are to some extent subjugated mm. by this great elder brain um, tends to rankle some of them. And so some alithids escape and go off and become rogues, essentially, um, away from the colony, which is really the safest place to face them. Um, because you, if you find yourself in a mind flare colony, your chances of survival at that point are practically nil. Unless you're drist. And, yes, yes. Drist uh, is one of the few to actually confront an elder brain and survive. So uh, I like the idea that, that they are uh, kind of like social insects in a way, in that uh, they have a life cycle that's a- completely alien to the way that humans yes. think of society. Yes. And uh, we're, you'll see a lot more talked about with mind flayers, a great deal more talked about with mind flayers in Volo's Guide to Monsters. They get a tremendous amount of attention, and you'll meet a few of the uh, mind flayer like creatures that tend to associate with them. Mm-hmm. We've already introduced some monsters in 5th edition that have strong ties to mind flayers, um, including the intellect devourers, which mind flayers create and then send out to basically turn uh, humanoids into puppets and lure them back to their colonies. Ugh. Yes, and uh, we've also introduced a number of races who have been enslaved by mind flayers and transformed into thralls. Uh, Kuatoa were once under the, the sway of mind flayers. Their hated enemies, the Gith, mm-hmm. the Gith Yankee and the Gith Sarai, were once slaves of the mind flayers. Um, and there are myriad others. And those, those all threads are in the 5th uh, edition monster mm-hmm. manual as yes. where they came from. Yes. Now, mind flayers, despite their great intelligence, are basically uh, underdark dwellers. They've been forced on a variety of worlds to go into hiding because they are being actively hunted by the Gith Yankee. Um, the Githyanki are trying to exterminate them for the crimes committed against them um, in ages past. Now, did they, in uh, what plane or, or what uh, uh, area did that subjugation happen? That happened on the astral plane. Ah. Um, the the Mind Flayer dominions were, were scattered throughout the astral plane, although it is now believed that none exist. The Githyanki destroyed them all. Uh, the, the Mind Flayers were forced to flee on ships called Nautiloids, and they colonized worlds and delved um, underneath them to hide. And uh, But there's always the fear that the mind flayers will gather their strength and rise up and perpetrate some evil scheme to take over worlds and eventually reform their empires, which would be bad for everybody. <laughs> it would. It would indeed. Yes. Um, mind flayers were probably most prominent in the Spelljammer campaign setting. Um, oddly enough, uh, they were sort of a showcase monster, uh, and you could encounter their nautiloids in the space between worlds. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, so Volo's Guide to Monster kind of brings to life some of this this life cycle and and these things. That, yes, uh, and it talks all also about what mind flare colony layers are like, and has a map of a colony layer, and sort of explains the intricate relationships between mind flares and the various other creatures. Um, that serve them and the elder brains whom they serve. Mm-hmm. Now, are there other uh, uh, types of mind flayers? You mentioned ones that were rogues. Uh, do they become 
you know, a separate race or a new monster when they do that? Or No, they're just sort of free-range mind flayers. Uh, occasionally, you'll get a really weird mind flayer who will sort of um, drift away from reliance on psionics and take up mastery of arcane magic, mm. a sort of mind flayer wizard or mind flayer sorcerer, if you will. They're exceedingly rare, and they're considered to be deviants. Uh, they would be destroyed by a mind flayer colony if they were ever found. Because of uh, uh, a social taboo, or does it mean more than that? It's a it's a general fear among mind flayers about things that are different, and mind flayers doing things that seem unnatural to mind flayers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are analogies in the modern world for that kind of intolerance. I see. And those are called Alhoons, correct? Oh, uh, no, actually. Alhoons are mind flayers who have not only undergone the pursuit of arcane magic, but have uh, gone beyond that and become liches. I see. Or undead, I guess. Uh, they are undead spellcasting mind flayers, even more rare <laughs> and more um, terrifying. Terrifying. Uh, and so, uh, do they want to eat live brains only, or do they okay with dead brains? Uh, they they actually don't feed on brains, or don't they don't require uh, any sort of nourishment anymore because they have gone from life into undeath, and and you uh, typically um, don't encounter them anywhere near mind flare colonies. They're they're by themselves. Yes, uh, one other weird mind flare offshoot is uh, the Ulitharid. Mm. which is an elithid of greater size and power. Uh, They're sometimes called noble mind flayers, although noble is a little misleading. Uh, Once in a generation, one might be created, and that one will go off. When When it eventually tires of following the commands of its elder brain, or sometimes with the consent of its elder brain, will go off and form a new colony. And that's how new colonies are created. A Ulitharid leaves one colony, goes off, starts another, and then once it's sort of cemented in its new location, it cracks open its own head, removes, has its brain removed, and put in a brine pool where it grows into an elder brain. Ugh. I'm thinking about my own evolution now and how I will... Yes. Take my brain out and put it into a Now, mind flayers are also, because they're sort of like science fiction creatures, they're also great experimenters. They're mm. always capturing, they, while they feed on humanoids, they often capture other kinds of creatures to try to metamorphose them into other things. Um, and that's how you end up with creatures like mind witnesses, which is basically an attempt by mind flayers to uh, perform a ceramorphosis-like experiment on a beholder ah so it's got properties of both yes. beholder and a mind flayer exactly and things like that are just nasty and the mind flayers are known for creating them hmm. so uh one question that always comes up with mind flayers in, in in my game whenever we're talking about it is do they need to consume brains uh the actual matter of the brain and and then digest it normally or is it the cyanic energy of a creature that is feeding on that that uh, gives it nourishment um so they actually eat the brain um and what happens is now there are some levels of details that we sort of leave to dms to sort of explain what happens like does the psionic damage to the brain liquefy it and they just sort of slurp it out like a you know like slush 
um, or do they have to sort of chew it out in some sort of solid form? Uh, those sort of grisly details, we leave it to the DM to explain, but they are actually physically consuming the brain. Uh, not only does it provide a, a meat and nutrients to them, but they also, in the consuming of the brain, also devour the psychic whatever the brain, all that stuff that the brain holds in terms of thoughts and stuff gets devoured and destroyed as well. And mind flares um, often retain, um, at least for a short time, some of the memories and knowledge of the creatures that they eat. Mm. Um, but uh, not always. It's unpredictable. Is that work kind of similar to a uh, like the magical means of trying to like gain information from someone, or is it just um, they uh, certain? It's it's not uh, codified that it's something that they can all do, but yeah, occasionally it it can be used as an information gathering mechanism, but it's not reliable. Um, a mind flayer can't always get information it needs from a victim simply by eating its brain. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much better off trying to use like a detect thoughts or something like that. Um, um, which a lot of mind flayers can do from their science. Yeah, they can, right. they can read minds um, and communicate telepathically and uh, coerce their victims into giving them the information that they need. Right. Occasionally, a mind flayer, uh, a newly created one, uh, one that has used to be human or some other humanoid, will retain some fragment of its previous self. Mm -hmm. So imagine that you're, you know, you're, you have a little tadpole put in your skull and you transform into a mind flayer. Most of what you were is gone, but you might retain some fragment, memory, dream, or something of Greg Tito. Interesting. Um, and uh, that can often cause confusion within a mind flayer because it doesn't necessarily know, have the context to know where that memory is from or what it means. Um, it's sort of a rare, it's considered sort of a rare malady among the mind flayers. Now, is there any way... And that's how you might encounter, say, a mind flayer who's not altogether evil. Is that was my question. There might be a mind flayer out there um, who has retained enough of its, of its former self to be exceptional and to, be, um, to think of itself not simply as a mind flayer, but as possibly um, you know, retains enough humanity to still be good or neutral, at least. And, uh, uh, and then resist the control of the elder yes. brain and, yes. and go off on its right. own. Now, it still has to feed its physical body, of course, so it it probably still has to suck people's brains out, but it might not like it. <laughs> it's like, oh, I hate this. This, ew, ew, this halfling uh, tastes terrible anyway. Ew, Why am I oh doing my God. this? This is so gross. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that on that uh, uh, wonderful uh, oral image which you just created for everyone, I think it's time to uh, uh, put mind flayers to bed. Yes. Uh, yeah, and if you want to know, there's a ton more information about mind flayers, and you'll find that all in Volo's Guide to Monsters, which I can't wait for. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. That was great hearing from Chris. Uh, I, I hope those, those lore bombs are going off in Dungeon Master's minds everywhere. Always. But now, time for something completely different. Let's but very exciting. At the same time, I know. We've been waiting for this for a long time. For a really long time. I know. Now it's like this is a completion. Almost I don't, I don't akin to getting Widow's Walk done. It's actually been a longer project to get been. Chris Funk of the Decemberist on this podcast. So. Guys like busy or something, whatever. <sighs> Whatever. Well, Touring. we'll find out for real when we get him up on the phone right about now. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Beep, boop, nice, Ryan. Nailing it.
Nailed it. Ryan's been waiting a long time, too. He has. Hello. Hi. Are you guys video or not? Because we'll turn our camera off if we're not to save time. No Plus, we're in video. a dark room. We okay, are good. no video. We are audio yes. only. We'll get better. Uh, we'll get better, you know, signal if we don't. So feel free to keep your pants off. That's totally fine. Yep, we don't care. Well, good. I was just gonna remain seated, but you know, okay. <laughs> our, our pants are off, and we're eating uh, nachos. Baker signature nachos. It's true. Ooh. I do make the best nachos in the world. We do tell. Tell us more about your nachos. Keith calls them OCD nachos because I, I'm calling them hors d'oeuvres. It's mm -hmm. an hors d'oeuvre plate, but they resemble nachos. Each one is is proportionately the same. Oh my god! Including so yes, I, I individually put all the toppings on the, each nacho just so that you are certain you never get that crappy nacho at the bottom. Oh of the yeah, the one that you pull out thinking it's going to be amazing, and all yeah. the cheese gets left on the plate. It's all soggy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's so, a lot of work though. It is a lot of work. It is a lot of work, and that's why I was worried we were going to be late because I was I was pushing it, but I really wanted <laughs> nachos. To prep for those, not, you know what's always makes for good audio podcasting yeah. <laughs> too is having like crunching sounds. That's what I was gonna exactly. Say. So you're exactly. gonna eat like, those nachos now on the podcast. Well, well, thus it's good that we didn't start right at one. Yes, that would have been a problem. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, uh, taking the time to come and talk to Shelly and I. We're very yes. excited. Yeah, no, very glad a to be lot here. Of questions. I feel like we've been trying to get uh, well, Chris especially uh, on the podcast for for a long time. I know I had to do composting and whatnot, or I don't know what I've been doing. But yeah, <laughs> you I, Portland I, people I and your composting. I know. I know you guys just dump it what the the landfill in Seattle, right? We no, actually we dump it in the landfill in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> we drive it all the way down. Too shame. <laughs> Good to know. We'll nice. launch it back with a catapult. We're the compost <laughs> capital of the world. <laughs> We actually, uh, I think before I started here at Wizards, uh, Chris, you came and visited and then got yeah. a, a, a Tiamat miniature. Is that right? Yeah. I did, and Tiamat rode along for all of the last December's tour on top of one of my amps. She did. Yes. And we she took a couple it. tumbles. Oh. Uh, not surprisingly, she survived high, wow. you know, high hit points. And uh, yeah, now she's, <coughs> now she's back at home and, and ready for adventure. Tiamat has never met a mosh pit she didn't love. She was trying no, to like crowd surf. No. Some confetti here and there. She didn't really care for in her mouths. In her mouths. In her mouths. <laughs> <So. laughs> Accidentally setting people on fire. That was one of my yeah. most favorite things, though, was when you would send us those pictures. Like, Tiamat, like, where in the world is Tiamat? Yep. I can do it every day now, but she's just sitting on top of my uh, pump organ. So yeah, it's, it's not as exciting. It's sad. Well, Wait. she needs some downtime. She's, she's using that acid breath to help with the composting. Tiamat is not currently nice. rising. She's chilling. She's just chilling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll get just back to her at some point. Tiamat chilling is going to be like the next campaign arc, you know? <laughs> it's, it's not really up to anything. Yeah. Just, you know, how's she doing? How's I know. Doing? We're, we're tired of all this, like, saving the world stuff. Now it's just like, let's get the villains just to chill for a while. Like, and just yeah. hang out. Right, right. Yeah. Tiamat unplugged. <laughs> there you go. Has Tiamat been influencing any of your music? You know, listening that you were staring at her while you were on tour. Absolutely. During the power ballads, I would just suddenly take a shredding guitar solo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like seven heads in one, so it's very schizophrenic. So well, it kind of fit in. I want to know if each band member, you know, associated <laughs> themselves with a particular head. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, like which head would you be? I never asked. I'd be... Uh, the blue, the blue gal, Bahamut. Good, uh, yeah, good choice. Blue yeah. is blue is my favorite. Because the, the lightning, uh, because you, you like to ride the lightning. Is that why? Because I like to ride the lightning. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. 
What about it's you, Keith? Star. If you were going to be a Tiamat head, who would you be? No, I, I, I just said the blue is my favorite, too. Oh, I oh, just you guys... always like I've always liked the look of them the most of the chromatic dragons. And yeah. I guess I also just it goes all the way back to reading the uh, Dragonlance books. Mm-hmm. And I really liked um, I really liked the blue dragon in that one. That makes sense. So, Kit- Kitiara's dragon. I think I I'm would so go. Excited, with... we like the same dragon. I never knew that. No. Yeah, there you go. That's why you guys get along. That's why you're good friends. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's gonna be the new thing. This you is know? like hey, the new Myers Briggs. Dragon, Dragons of a feather. Yep. Yep. You'll have little friendship bracelets with uh, uh, a team at heads on them. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's like a like a sun sign thing. So that's your chromatic dragon. What's your metallic dragon? Ooh, oh, yeah. Uh, wow. I have to think about that. Deep. It, can you think? Oh, yeah. I'm, oh. I'm silver. I'm definitely silver. Silver, yeah. Silver and blue. Those are, those are my dragons. Blue. They go well together. Mm-hmm. Both mm-hmm. with lightning breath, too, right? Yeah. 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 See, I guess lightning is just my, my element. See, I would go with bronze because they're so, you know, crazy. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's and they, and they breathe fire, right? So... I think I was thinking red and bronze. Those would be mine. You would be the red dragon. I think so. Mostly because of like my connection to smog and and that whole, you know, uh, 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 all the literature that's about the fire breathing dragons and and And, how they're capricious. And I thought I thought you just meant your connection to smog, like because the fire creates a lot of pollution. Yeah, that's what I. That's where I went to. Yeah. And the non-composting thing. I know. (laughs) That all that thing too. I've, I, do you guys pronounce smog differently? Because I've I've saw people be I've like said smog. Smog. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I I think yes, that totally. when I was growing up, so I was probably like six or seven. Uh-huh. Uh Our family had a like six disc vinyl uh, record set of. Nicole Williamson, mm-hmm. who plays Merlin in Excalibur. Oh yeah. Uh, reading The Hobbit. Okay. And and first off, he's a fantastic Gandalf, and it was the weirdest thing. Just recently, I went back and saw Excalibur, which I hadn't seen in in decades, and I'm just like, hey, it's Gandalf. Gandalf's doing this. <laughs> uh, but I'm pretty sure he says Smaug, so that's you know how I've got it. So it stuck with mind. you there. Yeah, I surreal. guess in the Rankin Bass animated one, it was always Smog with that mm. awe. I don't know why I, that always stuck in my head more. Well, it, it, it could very well, you know, since, as I said, I'm, I'm drawn under Nicole Williamson. It could be a, an American versus uh, British pronunciation. Oh, okay. Those Brits always pronounce al- yep. aluminum. In and- smog. They always <laughs> add the extra letters in there. Exactly. Favorite. Come on. <laughs> yeah, favorite. Dragons, exactly. <laughs> They're lightweights. So, uh, in addition to playing uh, or, or bringing Tiamat on tour with you guys, uh, you apparently also like to play uh, board games on tour. Busted. We, we did busted. Uh, we do before <laughs> we go on stage. Uh, we get in the huddle and um, we play various board games. Unfortunately, we don't play D and D yet. Um, I think next time we go on tour, um, we'll, we'll sort that out. Oh, and nice. We uh, we've dabbled with it with our our with Colin and I our DM and talking about the various technologies and it, we just were like too befuddled to wrap our head around it. But I think we will next go. Also because our keyboard player is now on the hook. You just uh, have to you just have to drag me along and I'll run an Eberron. And we're just gonna bring Keith to sell yeah, exactly. T-shirts and run Eberron. Yeah, himself. put him in your rider. It's part of your like d- <laughs> Dungeon Master on the Road uh, 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 series, there, right? I, mean, I I think she's right about the rider. I think it's yeah. just part of your thing. Is well, your personal Dungeon Master has to must be personal <laughs> Dungeon Master. <laughs> yeah. Must have dice kept at sixty four degrees Fahrenheit. 
Well, I appreciate that I'd just be kept in a closet or something like that, you know, working on the next adventure until, okay, time to come out. I kind of like that you're on the writer and each promoter has to figure out right. where to get Keith Baker. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what is this I, Keith Baker? I, I, of course, I, of course, have, have done this, you know, my time in uh, 2009 when I traveled around the world uh, DMing for food, uh, essentially. Yeah. Right. Have dice will travel. Oh, yeah. So I've got experience being a, being a traveling DM. I'm a troubadour. Saying, you can yeah. hold hold the story together under little sleep. Absolutely, oh, I yeah. can do it. I remember that from my from my previous life at the uh, at the Escapist promoting your 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 tours there. It was fun yeah. times. It's no, awesome. it was good. But yeah, December's play board games. It's it's public news. Uh, <laughs> it's um, out there. Well, so we happen line. to know um, according to the trailer on your Kickstarter page. Yep. At mm -hmm. roughly 35 seconds in, you are seen playing Betrayal at House on the Hill. Can you confirm this information? Good eyes. Confirmed. And that was in <laughs> London. Of all oh. Places. And I remember um, our, our, our uh, drummer, John Moen, just being so exhausted. And he's, I'll say, the least willing gamer of us all. But now he's he's in because we've tortured him into gaming, essentially. <laughs> that he was just like could not wrap his head around that game. I remember that being a very, well, it was kind of appropriate too. He was like just really morose. And but, did, but did he end up being the, the traitor? Because that would be a very awkward yeah. thing. if he was uh, the... I don't remember who it was at that game, but yes, that was Betrayal of House on the Hill. And um, we're, we're fans of that and excited for the expansion. Especially because Keith Baker is a contributor. Oh, that's right. Exactly. I'm excited for the expansion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so me too. So, yeah. But we played Betrayal on the House on the Hill. We play a lot of stuff. Um, just try to keep it busy, and it's been great. I mean, there was a time we were back in the day. We started touring, and it was pre. I remember when our bass player got a cell phone, Nate Query, and I was like, "Wow, a cell phone!" And I remember he was the first person to have a laptop on tour, mm. and I think it was like, it's so nice to put down the computers and um, everybody just kind of come together because now we're in a, a, a society where we just look at our phones or when we're in public and we don't have our eyes up. So it's cool to sort of have our eyes up and laughing together and talking together as a band and um, also, uh, you know, sort of breaking bread around the table, if it, as it were, before we before we play music. So it's been a really great thing for us to do. I, I think that's sort of one of my favorite things about games in general is first off, just bringing a group of friends together. And second, it's just something that creates stories Absolutely. that you share. Oh, you remember that crazy time when you were between, you know, playing Betrayal and John did this crazy thing, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, as I say, it's certainly something I've always loved and always sort of thought about in making games. Absolutely. Yeah. And D&D, you know, has those uh, uh, built in ways about story because, of course, it is just about that shared storytelling uh, experience. Uh, so, you know, beyond just the board games where it can be about, you know, the, the specific things that are happening, uh, moving pieces around a board, uh, it's everybody creating and cooperating and doing all that together. Uh, and uh, it's kind of amazing that you'd think about that as a band because, I don't know, maybe it's 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 different for, for you guys on tour, but we hear so much about, you know, or, or, uh, the the difficulties of being on tour and how it can be very, you know, take its toll on people and the traveling and going from place to place and uh, right. offshore all the, the, the drugs and, and alcohol that you're consuming. <laughs> uh, but no, like, yeah, to, to, it's just really cool to hear that. Like, okay, here's this moment of community uh, that has almost nothing to do with uh, the music or the, the the fame or whatever. But it's just here's us getting together before we're going about to go on stage. I think that's really a, a really neat idea. 
Yeah, there's that. And then there's also the, you know, people are like, oh, it must be so great to tour. You get to see the world and you get to see everything. And it's like, <laughs> frankly, there's a lot of, you know, it's, we always, always say two hours of fun and, and 23 hours of waiting around. So there's a lot of tedium involved. Or if you're, uh, did I do that math right? I, did. I was just going to say, um, there's 25 hours in a day. <laughs> well, if you're a Decemberist, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plus one hour to me. Um, so, <laughs> so there, you know, you'll be stuck out in the middle of nowhere and you're just like, you know, should I get into a, an Uber and drive into Omaha to explore Omaha or shit? No offense to Omaha, but you know, you're in these cities where you're not aware of what they are. So you look forward to gaming and just having, you know, to really passing the time in a, in a way that we're passionate about. It's, it's been great. Yeah. It's like the film business in a way where there's like, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. Uh, yeah. uh, situation. So it's cool to fill it up with something that's, uh, you know, create stories almost probably more important to you guys than, uh, 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 than, than all the sound checks and all that stuff put together. Uh, yes, true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I almost said sad, but true, but it, mm-hmm. actually, I'm proud to say but true. there's nothing sad about <laughs> There's nothing sad about gaming. Yeah. So I'm curious how you guys hooked up to do this game together. We hooked up to do this game together because Colin and I were, well, starting back with the idea of the game, Colin and I were kicking around, um, I think we were laying around and on, a, on a tour bus, as cliche as that sounds, uh, not holding each other, but across from each other. <laughs> <laughs> you hooked up on a tour bus, got it. I was going there, but okay. <laughs> Mine's going to run wild. Um, uh, so we, we were, in short, we said, oh, it'd be fun to make a game. What would a Decemberist game be? And we remembered um, that we had this uh, prop from a photo shoot from, from an album called Hazards of Love. And we were like, that would be great. And we contact, and I, I was, uh, Colin had said, oh, you know, how are we going to do this or blah, blah, blah. And I remembered that I that Keith lived in town because I, I sort of had stalked Keith already because <laughs> I, my daughter and I loved to play Gloom, which Keith created. And then I knew Keith game. from the world of Eberron fame. So I was like, well, this guy seems like a likely candidate to ask to make a game. And he said, sure. I, I will say that from my perspective, uh, <laughs> how this all started is that I get a message on Facebook from, you know, just random, random guys saying, oh, my daughter and I really like Gloom. And we were wondering if you'd be interested in trading December's tickets for some Gloom lessons. <laughs> and oh, wow. the, my immediate response was just, oh, what a nice Portlandy sort of thing to do. <laughs> I'm just, in my it's mind, I'm just boring. treating this as, this is just someone who happens to have an extra pair of December's <laughs> tickets. Because, you know, who wouldn't want a pair of December's tickets? And, and then I looked closer at, at the message and was like, oh, Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> now that makes sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, we just, uh, you know, hung out and, and played some games. And, uh, and and then they said, what about this crazy board, which uh, they gave me. So they gave me this this board, which is this, you know, big piece of wood. And it's it also has a secondary sort of little box, which in our current iteration is the actual box the game comes in that sits at the middle. Mm-hmm. And I had this sort of list of esoteric demands, if you will, of of what the game needed to be that, you know, it needed to evoke the feeling of hazards of love without actually being about it. And it should feel like an old game that, you know, could have been around and forgotten, like, you know, oh, this was around 80 years ago and just nobody remembers it. And Mm -hmm. it should be sort of a card game and sort of a Ouija board. And, you know, um, and so it was a really interesting sort of challenge. And, and, you know, it did sit down on the table in my basement 
excitement for probably like about three months as I sort of would come on and stare at it and, and wonder <laughs> and then find the inspiration struck. And uh, now we have it. I don't think we've mentioned the name, by the way. It's a game called Illimat. Illimat. So. Kind of like Tiamat. A, a very, oh, go ahead. Kind of like Tiamat, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> will be the sequel, and instead of I kind of like it four already. fields, we'll have five fields, and each one will be a different dragon. Five. five heads, five fields. Yeah. I like that. She would support that. Do not burn. Do not freeze. You know, those will be the the field. <laughs> I think it would actually be the variant that merges Illimat and Three Dragon Ante. That's the way to do it. Oh yeah. So I'll I'll get to work with Rob Hanso on that. So, cool. what, so yeah, the, this whole idea about designing from a board that already existed is, uh, is, is pretty unique. And uh, evoking the spirit of an album. But. Yeah. So how did, how did you approach, I mean, you said it was downstairs in your, in your basement for a long time. Did you just kind of like ruminate it on it for a long time before something came and then inspiration struck? Or was it more of an iterative process? Well, it was a couple different elements because, again, the the lines, you know, were feeling like an old card game that people may have just forgotten. And it was actually not that it evoked the album as much as this should be a game it feels like people might play in the world of Hazards of Love. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a game that belongs in that world as opposed to a game about that world. Right. Um, and so the first thing is that the board itself is fairly distinctive you know it's divided into four quadrants so clearly we're doing something with these four quadrants and then this critical extra element is at the center you have this second box and so it's like first off one of the most interesting things about that is well because it's a separate piece it can move and so that was this is this is not unlike actually the design process I went through with Gloom because with Gloom I started with just you can have a transparent card. What could you do with that? Mm. This was sort of the same thing of saying, well, we have this second box on the board. What can we do with that? And ultimately that's one of the most sort of distinctive, interesting parts of the game is basically that determines the season for each field. And as you change it, it basically changes up the strategies of the game. And so it has this general feel because the second part was I basically pulled out a 1901 copy of Hoyle and just started looking through a bunch of games that, you know, no one I know plays, you know, let's, let's read about whist because I don't actually know about whist. (laughs) And so just looking at older games that again, aren't really played that much, but the mechanics are still perfectly sound. And so it was this combination of pulling some older mechanics uh, and and then blending that. But, okay, how do we com- you know merge that with the four fields, with the rotating box, and then with what we call the luminaries, uh, which are sort of major arcana figures, if you will, that are individuals from Hazards of Love. And that's where you sort of draw in, if you made a Toro deck in this world, well, who would the major arcana be? Mm. And that's a factor that both adds replay to the game because different combinations create different effects, but also ties it more concretely uh, to the hazards world. So when you, you uh, I mean, mm-hmm. our, our listeners may not know uh, uh, the album Hazards of Love. Um, I, I was a fan of, of you guys back in the day and I had uh, 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 Cutouts and Castaways was the, the album that I listened to the most. 
uh, from the Decemberists. Uh, but for Hazards of Love, you know, I didn't realize that the that the that they were characters in that. Is it more? Is that more of a? Yeah, Chris, can you talk a little bit more about that album and what, and what it means and what it was all about? Yeah. Um, well, it sort of me- it meshes together a bunch of uh, archetypes you find. I would say in the British folk realm or in folk music in general um, to, to sort of cobble together to create a new story. And it's more or less, I, I hate to call it a rock opera, but it starts and it, it ends. So when we would perform that live, it was a 45 minute performance piece. And there's, def, there's definitely songs that come in and come out, but we, we treated it as one giant sort of thematic piece of music um, in creation to tell this, this large story. So um, it's it plays you know someone could easily RPG this this, yeah. this album, and we were mindful of that. Um, just wanting to make a game that was kind of closer to the, to the starting with the game board. Um, and and that's sort of the point is that Hazards of Love does tell a story over the course of the songs. Right. There is a story that unfolds. A maiden meets a changeling who's the son of the forest queen who disapproves. Uh, has a rake who kidnaps her or hires, you know, works with the rake to kidnap her. They have to cross a river uh, to, to find her. You know, sort of this story unfolds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the point, again, was saying, well, we're not going to make a game that is actually like you are going through that specific story. Right. But again, the luminaries of Hazards of Love are, you know, the maiden, the changeling, the rake, the river. Right. And so it sort of takes these iconic elements from that story and says, you know, well, these, again, to me as a fan of tarot, it was back to that, you know, these are the things that have iconic meaning to the people in this world. Right. right. I would, and I would, yeah, I would say Hazards of Love is the most D&D friendly album in our canon. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. Sense of, uh, of, it definitely yeah. has, the, yeah, from, what, from the way you describe it, it definitely feels that way. And uh, uh, I love the idea. I mean, people used to call those concept albums in a way, uh, but those... That is kind sure. of, uh, you know, calling. I don't know. You don't. You don't. You don't see hear as many of those uh, happening. Uh, not in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and there's a there's a certainly a throwback in the sound um, with that album as well. Um, kind of heavier on the guitar rock, and um, and then also stepping heavier into the folk realm for us. So two distinct genres from the seventies and sixties. Could you see someone, uh, you know, now that, you know, obviously this, this project is still kicking and, and, and ready to go on uh, on Kickstarter, but could you see doing a, a more RPG story based thing based on on this album or or, or do you want to like kind of put it to rest at this point? I think we're looking to the next album at some point, you know, I yeah. think it's been really fun to step back. I think if we do anything, we would, I keep joking that I want to make Hazards of Love Part 2 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> but in, 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 in the all cyberpunk version. Uh, Don't tease us. That's, that, would be, that would be wicked. Um, cyberpunk folktale. Totally. Yeah. Get wow. Daft Punk to be involved. Uh, no, he's done it. Now Rogers. Um, nobody. Uh, it's nobody. too late. John Roderick is doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the contracts here. Just sign them. Totally. Um, but, so I think if we do anything, we, we would I don't think we will, but I think if we did, we would revisit it with a new a new album and keep moving forward is kind of our mindset, I think. So it's been fun to step back and um, use that that prop from a photo shoot that Keith brilliantly I turned know, into. Oh, that was really and inspiring. I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's sort of part of the point here, too, is is one of the reasons for choosing Hazard specifically here, although it does you know work very well with this sort of tarot element, but also specifically was this board was created 
when they were making Hazards of Love and had been sitting around, you know, sort of since then. So it was logical to sort of make it about Hazards of Love. Absolutely. That's where it came up in the first place. Right. And what was the name of the artist who, uh, who designed it? That is the fabulous Carson Ellis. Nice. And she does 98% of our artwork and um, is also very involved in the creation of this game as well currently. And um, kind of, a, I think she beat Keith last night in like oh, two she, hands. Oh, she Illimat. stomped me. It was, uh, you know, usually we're pretty evenly matched, but uh, it, it was her birthday. And it is not <laughs> I in any way went easy on her for the birthday. But I think the universe was giving her a present because uh, <laughs> she, she had everything going. Got to um, beat Keith Baker at his own game. Yeah, and of course, I, I played three games that night, and I lost all of them pretty badly. Oh, and man. usually, I'm pretty good at this game, but that was not my night. Um, Does it have a is is it be is there a high element of luck involved in this game? Not oh, so it's it's a classic card game, you know, and so certainly you will have times when you do just get a crappy hand and there's not much you can do. So, you know, mm -hmm. imagine if you're playing hearts or gin or bridge or anything like that. Sometimes the cards just go against you, but it is definitely a game in which knowing what to do with the cards you have uh, and being clever in how you change the seasons and things like that make a difference. Uh, what I say about it is in a two-player game, and that's where I was playing with Carson, you know, last night. I'm just saying in a two-player game, usually there's a lot more strategy. And in a four-player game, you got to sort of just take, you know, the opportunities uh, that you can grab. Um, one of the things, just going back to Carson for a moment, mm -hmm. that I really love about what she's done with it is so we have these luminary cards that, as I said, they're sort of the major arcana of this deck. And each one really feels like a very sort of mystical, iconic symbol. But she's also done this great job of working into the imagery of the card what the card actually does. Yeah. So the card, the river, uh, the effect of the card is essentially when it's revealed, you put six cards out to the field. And the image is of these six cards floating in a river. And the point is, again, if you know the game, oh, you know exactly what that means. If you don't, it just feels like it could be a tarot card. You know, you don't look at that and say, I don't get it. Why are there cards there? You know, it feels part of the image. And so I really uh, love that that degree of uh, holding the artistry of it and yet still making it very functional. Yeah, typically that card would have, a, you know, plain text when you see when you reveal this card do this and blah, blah, blah. so you really, really didn't want to do that it's, so it's really nice in that way she did a great job with it that is super cool um so where can uh, uh people go check out uh Illimat and and uh contribute to uh, make it a, a thing and get one of these awesome tote bags i, know, that tote bags. Yeah, tote bags. I was drooling over there's, the tote bag there's there's nothing wrong with wanting a tote bag which which is of course uh carson's art and you know that's one of the images the card deck itself has this very awesome sort of medieval woodcut sort of feel mm. that i really like what she's done with it. uh it's on kickstarter just look up illimat that's i-l-l-i-m-a-t um, beyond that, we're on almost every form of social media. So it's at Illimat on Twitter, Illimat on Facebook. I think we're on Instagram, uh, you know, or you can just like read Mr. Chris Funk's, uh, uh, you know, Twitter feed. And I'm sure he will mention it occasionally. Just Absolutely. a few times. <laughs> Yeah, I did watch the video of you, Chris, uh, uh, teaching some folks to play, uh, which oh, cool. then I was like, There's... oh, I can totally get how, to, how this game works now. 
There, yeah, there's that, a couple pretty because there's the a pretty awesome video. Who are you playing with again? I was playing with who I, know, I think you folks know uh, a couple of the characters from the Magic Tavern in mm. Chicago, Chunt mm-hmm. uh, and um, Usador the Wizard. And and it's it's uh, it's a pretty fantastic uh, session of the game. And what I love about it in terms of a play play video is they do a little time lapse at the beginning, and there's some moment where someone is being foiled by winter yes. changing, and they're just like "Dooh!" and I'm like, "Yes, that is exactly because yeah. you know that's." And that's, to me, was that perfect sort of, this is the kind of moment that makes playing games great, yeah. is, you know, when you have that, that whether it's a triumph, whether it's a frustration, but that's that moment you remember, oh, you know? Yeah. Uh, and of course, I'm, I'm very, I, I love our actual Kickstarter video, too, is... Uh, yeah, is, it reminded me of like of a drunken history or something like that. Oh, yeah. That, exactly. Right. That was definitely our inspiration in the middle, the middle section. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. That was good stuff. Yeah, and I, and I I had the same reaction to that winter moment because I saw that in the uh, mm-hmm. in the intro, and then when that moment came up in play, I was like, "Is he gonna do it? I think he's gonna do it. He did it. I, he's cursing winter." <laughs> uh, so that was that was awesome, and definitely evoked the feel of what that uh, that kind of you know it reminded me of like of a gin rummy or or that kind of a, <laughs> a, a, a game that you know you could uh, you play around and get little moments of, yeah. of, of triumph and tragedy. Yeah, throughout it. Um, so we, when we do the D and D podcast, we usually ask people like, uh, just kind of shifting tracks away from Illumat if you guys sure, sure. are cool. Um, we always ask about people's D and D like origin, like where did you first play D and D? Like, was there like an iconic, you know, table that you were invited to by some older, uh, siblings it's or an older kid. it is almost always an older <laughs> sibling, you know, or was it, uh, uh, my personal one's always like reading, you know, through the books and then yeah, getting a chance to play seeing the book ac- across a crowded mm-hmm. bookstore. Yeah. Like, that's, I'm, and I'm having, gonna go, that's for me. Yeah. I'm going to go first because mm-hmm. Keith is going to trump me on this one. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Because um, he played with Donald Trump, right? I knew it. Yeah, actually, uh, I, I designed in my youth Trump the board game. Okay, no, I did not. Do that, anyhow, carry I'm, on. I'm really curious what Trump's character was, but we'll get back to that. Yeah, um, that's a lich. It was I, huge. Yeah, it was a half giant. And uh, anyhow, yeah. Um, I I uh, I'm 44 years old, so I was in that sweet spot. I'm uh, not to beat the Stranger Things dead horse at this point, but I actually grew up in Indiana. Um, and that's pretty much my age and pretty much the year I started playing D&D. I watched that and I was like, no kidding. Wow. Um, did you get kidnapped to another world? And I, <laughs> and, and, and eventually I started burping up these little like Yeah, I was slugs. wondering. That explains <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah, right. <laughs> did you see a girl there by any chance? Her name was Barb, I think. That part was left out of my youth. Oh, Barb. R.I.P. Barb. Um, no, but I, I, my neighbor across the street, his name was, I'll never forget, his name was Arnie Coons, and he was my dungeon master. Are you listening, Arnie? Where are you? Now um, look what you've started, Arnie Coons. Arnie Coons. And <laughs> I, I, had, I was just fascinated by it, and he was already building um, styrofoam worlds, revealing you know, very Dwarven Forge-like realms with miniatures at that point. And it was, it was so, it's such great D&Ding at that point. Um, uh, so, and we had a hobby shop in my town. I grew up in, in Northwest Indiana, very close to Chicago. And I'd go down to the hobby shop and same thing, buy the modules and start reading them. But really I had a great, a, a pretty proficient dungeon master at a young age. And we were playing, I think at that time, I think advanced D and D and, um, he was mainly doing homebrew stuff, but I do, I was just talking with Keith about, uh, Tomb of Horror and mm-hmm. uh, we actually played Tomb of Horror is probably when, and that's probably when I quit playing D and D. But I remember playing, you know, like Ravenloft stuff, and but mainly homebrew stuff, and then put it down, and then 
about wait, but how, how old were you when you when you started playing? Seven or eight. Seven or eight. All right, that yeah. is early. Was yeah, was uh, was he older? Was the dungeon master older? He was older. Yeah, he was a, a few years older, so probably fourteen. So he had it down. Nice. Uh, now, did Arnie recruit you, or did you go to Arnie and see he had some weird books on his bookshelf and? I went. I saw the styrofoam with like a you know the the cloth over the top and miniatures, and was just like, wow, what is what is this? And then saw the artwork and was immediately drawn to it, um, and um, then put it down for years. And then I remember I actually lived with Colin, our singer, in in a loft in like 2003. And I remember he and I and another friend trying to take up the first edition and like learn it. And we were just like, what the hell are we doing? We can't. We can't. <laughs> And then fast forward to um, about whenever the fifth edition came out. Has it been three years now? Yeah, uh, 2014. Wow. So two yeah, years. Three years. Wow. I, right before that, I walked into my friend's basement, uh, who I'd just become friends with, who are um, Chelsea Kane, who is a, a novelist, an amazing writer, and uh, her husband, Mark Mohan, son of actually Kim Mohan. Oh, like, no that's way. right. I forgot there was that Kim. Yeah. Kim son, of Kim. Son, of Kim. son of Kim. Son of Kim. <laughs> that's the character, son of Kim. Um, but I walked into their basement. And I was like, do you guys play D&D? Like, what, like, what is all this? Like, oh, my God. It was the same thing, like looking around at minis. And they have this down, this beautiful downstairs for gaming. And they're like, yeah, do you, we're going to have a game going. Do you want to play? And I was like, yeah, I told Yes, I absolutely want to play. And I mentioned it to Colin. And Colin's like, no way. I want to play. So we've been playing uh, fifth edition with them ever since. Wow. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> That's awesome. I like that. Yeah. 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 I started when I was nine and in my case it, it was, you know, certainly my older sibling was, uh, was not involved, but in my case it was just my parents probably. Wow. I uh, just gave me the, um, the original AD&D books. I had the original AD&D books and the, the white box set. And I think it was just because I was a huge Tolkien nut. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, this is sort of tolkien Here, read these. And so, you know, I, I just read through them all. And, you know, again, you know, at, at that age, no one was, you know, I didn't even know anyone who was playing it. But it was just fascinating. And I loved things. I really loved mythology. So I loved mm-hmm. things like deities and demigods because here you, it was actually like you could actually sit down and say what would happen if Zeus and Thor got into a fight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the monster manual is just like this amazing yeah. tome of monsters with pictures and it's just cool, you so know. Uh, I think I have one where I was using it as sort of a coloring book. Um, <laughs> oh, but right, because there's all those pen and ink drawings. That all you those pen and ink drawings. So and so, uh, so I just loved reading it. And basically, at some point, I just said, okay, hey, friends, let's do this. And so I was pretty much the dungeon master 90, 95% of the time. Um, and, you know, that's just been my life ever since. And uh, I never, I didn't play a lot of other people's modules, but I like to buy modules and read them to get yeah. ideas. I mean, I loved things like, you know, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks or, you know, when I was watching, uh, I think it was the Goldbergs had their D&D episode and they pull out the Ghost Tower of Inverness. You yeah. Know, turn mm-hmm. and, play. and I'm like, yep, yep, you know, that's a real thing. Yeah. You know, I was telling, awesome. telling Jen, you know, yep, no, that I, I played that. I held that module in my hands. I just found, actually, I was just showing Chris earlier, I found on my shelf, I have a copy of Temple of Elemental Evil that Gary Gygax signed at Gen Con 18, which was probably the first Gen Con I went to. 
and it was very exciting to me, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So what year was that? That was, I'm trying to do the math in my head. I don't remember what we're up to now. I was trying to do the same thing, and I yeah. didn't say to, that to do it. That sounds like around 1990. Is that about right? If it was, see, that feels a little late to me, because I would have been 21 then. And oh, okay. That's, I feel like I was still in high school. Was it Milwaukee? Oh, uh, probably. It was certainly long before Indiana, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but I don't remember if it was Milwaukee or if it, there was anywhere before Milwaukee. But So what was it like? Did you get to uh, talk to Gary at that time? Well, first off, it was long ago, so I don't remember in great detail, and it was brief. You know, he was doing a signing line, so, you know, it was just going through the line. It certainly was something which, to me as a kid, it was just a sort of legendary, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing to me is that I always, you know, a lot of people don't know what they want to do or try lots of things. I always knew from, you know, at least the time I was 13 or 14 that I wanted to be a game designer. And the whole thing to me was... I'm holding this D&D book. Someone made this book. That is a job that exists. I'm going to get that job. And wow. I'm obviously more fortunate than most people in actually having to having made that work. And, you know, certainly there were a lot of detours along the way. But I always was very fixed in my mind. You know, I'm not sure how you get this job, but I'm going to. Amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, because I don't think many people put that to, you know, a, a, to be like, oh, this is great, amazing right. material. I want to start creating it on my own. But then to think that that could be a profession. Well, and nowadays, of course, you actually have, you know, different sorts of things, obviously, generally more computer game, but still, you know, right. now there's game design courses at college and yeah. such. And I was growing up now, you know, no, that yeah, right. I mean, thing at all, but uh, yeah, video games so were in again. the same boat back then as being like, oh, that's not yeah. something that, you know, any respectable programmer would ever do, you know, that kind right. of thing. Uh, so, so yeah, again, there was a lot of tricks along the way, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly getting out of college, it was like, well, there was no clear, obvious now, how do you get this? Uh, and what happened with me, as it turned out is I did, I ended up getting into the computer game business mm. because there was an opportunity. And so I worked in computer games for about eight years. Where did you work? What? I worked at a company, probably nowhere you've ever heard of, because in fact, none of the games I worked on in those eight years came out. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and in some cases, that's a mercy, and in others, it's really sad, because I worked on a couple really good games. Yeah. So I worked at a company called Magnet Interactive Studios, uh, which was terrible. And then I moved to Colorado and worked at a company called VR1, which was much better, and spent three years each on two different games as lead designer. Uh, that were great games and because of Dilberty sort of stuff, neither <laughs> of them came out. The second one was... I blame Capper. Yeah, the second one was an MMO called Lost Continents. And it was a pulp MMO, mm. uh, very much drawing on both Republic Serials, Indiana Jones, The Mummy, that kind of flavor. Yeah. And uh, so I spent basically three years watching sort of serials and you know stuff of that era and as i said over the course of this eight years i did start doing freelance writing and role playing you know i did make some connections and when it became clear to me that that game was going to be canceled i just looked at it and i said oh they're not going to they're not going to do this i quit and it did get canceled like a month later mm -hmm. uh and then the fantasy setting search happened. You know, I basically said, I've got enough connections in role playing that I'm going to try doing this as a full time freelance job. And two months later, the setting search was announced. 
Oh, and, that's fortuitous timing. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about Eberron is Eberron is actually in part inspired by Lost Continents. Mm. Not in any specific way, but it was that, as I said, I've been watching all these pulp serials and, you know, I've always been a fan of uh, film noir and such. And there was just this, what if you took some of that crazy pulp adventure flavor and worked that into D&D? Yeah. And so, as I said, that was a little bit of the, the seed that led me to, uh, you know, that inspired the pitch I made forever. That's amazing. That's cool. Eberron was the first setting I ever played D&D in. Yay! My very first character, Astrid, she's now retired, living in Sharn, teaching sorcery at the local girls' school. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm sad that she's not in Arcanics, you know, I mean, girls magic school in Sharn, I sort of worry it could be a, a seedy operation, Might but I be. suppose if you're up on Skyway or, you know, one of the nice parts of, you know, as long as you're I, up in the tower. Yeah, yeah, def- for sure. I don't know. She but, chose Sharn is where she wanted to retire. <laughs> I, I kind of like the, the lower district, you know, lower tower girls magic school in Sharn as a, as a sort of, uh, there was a parody someone did of Harry Potter called something like uh, Dangerous Wands or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hermione going and being an inner city magic yep, school teacher. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, pretty hilarious, kind of but I, I would love to see that. Yep. That sounds like what Astrid is doing right yeah. now. Yes, yeah. yeah. Giving back to the people. So, Chris, <laughs> you said that you uh, uh, had got into Eberron. Uh, uh, so what, what was it like, um, you know, kind of, Reading those books and then and then now reaching out to the person who, who who created all that. I'd never actually read any of the books, and Keith just gave me. Um, oh, okay. Stone to read. So, but I I would, had played Eberron kind of was like a one off with some friend, like not a one off, but we played for a while. So, I I Eberron, um, it was like it, it's such a I feel like famous world in the <laughs> realm of D and D, and it's so it's like rock, I'm sitting with rock star. I'm sitting with gaming royalty. I went with, to Gen Con with Keith, and it was like, oh my god, it's like, wow, this this uh, I had no idea how um, Eberron has grown as I as I came away from D and D. So, um, what was that like though? Yeah, talk a little bit about about had you been to Gen Con before? No, this is this was nope, this was, was first Gen Con. So was it was fun to it was fun to 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 get to you know see someone enjoying their first Gen Con. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, the thing I, selfishly that I love about Gen Con the most is that at night there's so much gaming happening, and it's like people are literally come. Sure, they're coming to pedal the wares, but they're really coming to hang out with their friends and and commune and game. And there's obviously been some games going on for a long time at Gen Con. Mm-hmm. But I was up every night playing until four and five in the morning um, beyond the shopping experiences and finding new games and meeting people. The, the game is just fantastic. And I'm going every year just to game. <laughs> so, <laughs> You're hooked. Yeah, it was great. I want to take my daughter next year. She was very jealous. How old is your she daughter? Uh, she's 10 and she just started playing D&D with um, I'm DMing for her and one of her friends who's also 10. And then oh, their awesome. younger sister, uh, Phoebe and Alice Whipple, and Alice is seven, and they are completely in. Like they come nice. over and like, can we play? I'm like, and I, yep. I, uh, I seem to recall I let her raid my minis closet yep. uh, the uh, the other day. So she's on the hook. She's taking the torch over from dad, so to speak. All That's right, great. I hope she continues on, but they they love it, and they love the the fifth edition and the characters and the. the so what's her character? Uh, Scout is playing a a, uh, a human fighter. Right. Uh, 
based uh, the fighter's name is Katniss. So it's uh, sorry, <laughs> Catnip. Catnip. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. Sleep based on Katniss from mm-hmm. another world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's an archer, clearly. Then. She is absolutely an archer. Yep. Uh, that's awesome. And then it's so great to hear. Uh, I mean, my kids are, are five and three, so they're a bit early uh, uh, to kind of bridge into this. But I, I'm waiting for that right moment. They're getting primed already. Yeah. Especially Edna. Edna's ready. Yeah. yeah. It's great. The, the younger of the of the three girls, Alice, but we were in a bookstore. There's a great bookstore called Longfellows, which is right by my house in Portland. Mm-hmm. And they just have stacks and stacks of books from over the years. And I go in there and look for old modules or world of guides and I stuck and I asked the woman like do you have any you know uh, advanced D&D stuff or D&D and she's like I don't know and she's like I don't even know what that is like, <laughs> well then you're like let the, me tell you yeah seven year old was like it's a game that never ends and oh. I got shot by a goblin in the arm and then pulled out the arrow and shot it back and killed it and oh. the woman was like what are you doing with these children <laughs> <laughs> And you were like, goblin. you are, you know, when the like, goblins come and she saves us all, you'll be glad. That's yeah. Right. I was like, I'm very proud right now. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're teaching life skills That's uh, right. to these uh, survivalists when the, when the apocalypse hits. So when you're Absolutely. playing with a seven-year-old and a goblin shoots her, are you kind of yeah. like, you know. Uh, Dumbing it down? Yeah. Like you're not going to kill her, are you? Not going to kill her, no, and not really dumbing it down. I mean, you know, I checked with their parents, you know, is this, I mean, I know their parents very well and the family very well, and and these kids are, um, they read fantasy at, you know, 15-year-old levels, mm-hmm. uh, not the seven-year-old, of course, but they're they're in it and they're fine with that sort of stuff happening, um, and they, they love it. I mean, I, 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 mean I, I played it when I was that age, and there's always this, like, sort of creeping around those kinds of things, and I was like, well, I, you know, I haven't anything unusual in my life beyond playing music so you, you know what i mean with with <laughs> well that can be bad for some folks it's a combat i think kids can handle it you know and that you make yeah. it a lot of fun and it's such deep fantasy it's in their mind you know you're not showing it to them on an ipad and that's the no. beauty of it it, yeah, it's it, whatever it can be as scary or not scary as they want to make it in their mind you know, you're telling them. sad about their characters dying the rest of it i feel like they can handle it's, but like oh yeah, but even yeah. that's a life lesson, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a character, it's a goldfish, whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, one of my other projects I've been working on recently is a role-playing game called Phoenix Dawn Command. Mm-hmm. And the the catch about that is how your character actually levels up, essentially, is by dying. Oh. Die and return, but you don't come back right away, and you don't... You can only come back seven times. So each time you get stronger, but you're also closer to the edge of the road. And the main point was so you could have those moments like Gandalf holding the Balrog on the bridge. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting. One of the last games I played was with a group of 10 and 11-year-olds. And it's interesting because they can sort of do some slightly more over-the-top things. Because, again, death isn't the end of the story. Uh, it's, you know, there's a, a whole different story there. But as I said, it just strikes me as, you know, this is the game where you could say, well, I'm going to throw myself down the mouth of the dragon. And, cut <laughs> and I don't care if the stomach acid eats me alive. Exactly. Or, yeah. exactly. And it will, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and so it is just interesting because it's, it's a game that lets you sort of explore some situations that just don't necessarily work in a lot of other stories. Yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of DMs uh, uh, and players too, you know, you're right, put undue uh, meaning on player death 
because it can. Well, right. I, I always saw it as a as a great storytelling element, and, I, and maybe it is my uh, uh, affiliation or, or, or affection for the Lord of the Rings story too. Is that, yeah? There's 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 always another th- way you can spin it or make it more like a you know you were prophesied to die and come back and that kind of you know whole messianic thing. Um, Speaking as as a as a game master for thirty years, uh, you know I I certainly early in my career was generally a pretty softy game master because it's that whole, to me, we're making a story together. Yeah. I'm not averse to your character dying, but I want to feel if I was reading a book or watching a movie, this is a moment a character might die. Like, I don't like just, oh, you know, I happen to roll a critical hit with this random orc that we happen to meet on the road. And, yeah. Oh, shit. Make it meaningful. And, and to me, it's as long as it feels like this is significant, like we're happy with the story, even if the character died. Uh, like, again, taking that moment in uh, in Lord of the Rings, you know, that's a moment that feels really powerful and dramatic. And and so, yeah, I, I certainly don't shy away from from killing folks. It's just I want us to feel like we're both happy with with the story we've created there. Right. And that was actually how Phoenix ended up happening is I had this amazing sort of sacrifice death moment in uh, a D&D game. I was playing with uh, a friend of mine and much later when the two of us were working on uh, like just saying we want to come up with something, you know, we're working on just a setting idea at the time. And we just loved that moment. We were like, that was one of our favorite moments. And as it was, it was a moment when I was leaving. And they're like, well, let's have a big go out with a bang moment to the campaign. And we're like, well, what if you could do that and not have it be, the oh, end. because yeah. you're leaving or something right. like that. And and so, as I say, you know, Phoenix is a very different, it's its own right. different thing. But I love it because it's a, it's a thing designed to tell that kind of story. So it's it's pretty interesting in its own way that is super cool yeah and it, it, right in D, you know as it stands now it takes some some doing for the dungeon master to kind of not make that like oh you're dead you know like yeah. it has to you know you kind of have to do some improvisational storytelling to kind of make it have that dramatic moment but it's neat to have that baked it, into the mechanics itself it was interesting because uh one of the moments i think back to in one of my favorite ever on campaigns that i was a player in we had a moment where uh, our fighter didn't show up for the night. The game master didn't adjust the challenges. Oh, no. This long, grueling combat against a bunch of vampires. And it was, as I said, long and painful. And we're being dominated and stunned and, you know, stuff. And finally, we all ended up dying <laughs> after like two hours of struggling this. And the game master ended up deciding long after that, oh, you know, a wandering cleric comes by and resurrects you. And and we were so frustrated by this fight that me and a bunch of the players were basically saying, no, no, no. You know, we, we should come back as vampires now. And now we're just going to completely change the tone of the adventure. And now we'll be working for the Emerald Claw. And, like, can we break free of our vampiric enslavement? But the point was we wanted it. We're like, after going through that fight, we're like, we want this to have meant something. Yeah. You know, even though we lost, we want to at least feel that that's part of the story now. Uh, and Yeah, there's something powerful you know, about that. 
Yeah, and I still think that would have been a really cool thing to explore. Whereas, again, <laughs> when we just ended up being resurrected, it was just like, oh, so we kind of pretend that didn't happen. And I'm like, well, then what was the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've actually done that a few times, uh, mostly as a thought experiment with my players, but like as, mm -hmm. you know, hey, what happens if we fail? Like what happens if right. this great story that we've been trying to prevent this, you know, this undead horde from rising, what if we screw up and it doesn't work? And then, right. all right, let's start a new campaign where that event has happened. And right. new characters now have to deal with, you know, the failing of your, 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 the previous party's characters. And, and again, not to, to harp back on that point, but that's my favorite thing about Phoenix yeah. is Phoenix is a game that is designed with exactly that in mind. You know, we send you into this village to stop this zombie outbreak and it exists the possibility that you could simply all die and the story's not over. You'll right. come back. But you will have lost that, you know, now we've lost that region to the zombie plague, you know, and I love being able to sort of explore that kind of thing, because designing D&D stories, that's just not usually how I would design the story, mm -hmm. you know, to plan for the idea that, oh, and the player, you know, it's designed for a total party kill, you know, yeah, right. if you but, well, what do you think, Chris? Do you think you would want to uh, uh, kill off your 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 daughters uh, and her friends uh, and start anew in a in a zombie world? Um, not yet. No, <laughs> I, think, I think they can handle the theme of zombie. But um, the, the thing that that you know, in talking with it was when my daughter was um, getting to the age to start playing games, I started looking for like, is there like a you know? I know there's been. Uh, maybe you all even did a podcast on this, um, or I've read things, but people looking for like entry level D and D adventures that mm -hmm. don't involve, and it's like you know, there's just kind of no getting around what it is at its core, and I guess you can tone it down and whatnot. But yeah, I think everybody knows their children the the best, and when they're ready for adventures and whatnot. But I think with the kid with the kids that I am playing with and showing D and D to, they're most drawn to the story, and the combat is like, sure, okay, that's fine. Um, so they're really sort of as, uh, I think as a, as a good DM 10 year olds or not, I think you sort of figure out your audience and, um, help them arrive where they want to be in, in their world. I think that's what's the most and, fun. And I think that to me is the most important part of being a good game master Right. is it's not that you're forcing a story on people. It's that you are making a story with them right? and you want to be flexible and adjust and, and sort of what makes things like D&D so great is, hey, I've written fantasy novels. And if I was just going to write a novel and hand it to you, here it is. With D&D, we are making a story. Right. Right. We can make it something that, you know, we didn't know we wanted right. at the start. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for, uh, uh, you know, taking out uh, an hour of your busy rock star schedules <laughs> uh, to chat with us. And demystifying what exactly happens backstage. Yeah. You guys yeah. play games. On the Tiamat tour. <laughs> On the Tiamat tour, yeah. Now we want that to spread to all rock bands. So all, yep, all yep. Uh, musicians out there listening. Uh, we spoke to uh, uh, Ben Queller recently. Say, he said that that's what they do, too. Yeah, they play D&D &D on Aww. tour. Uh, no, they've, they've they've navigated D and D on tour, so yeah. I think yeah, one of us just need to need to buck up and either uh, get hire Keith Baker to come with us. Or, <laughs> mm -hmm. Hey, yeah. I'm available yeah, too. Just throwing that out there if you ever need. Yeah, Greg can go on tour with you. Sure, no problem. I'll take a sabbatical here. 
No, I think I think this comes back to the writer. I think that the the place just has to provide a quality DM, yeah. and here is a yep. list of of acceptable choices. Per, per have, regions, Baker, yeah, Tito, Perkins, and yeah. different regions. Absolutely. Skittles and M and M's separated by color, and D and D provided. Map. That's all we need. Yeah, <laughs> like actually no miniatures separated in different bowls. So here's your orcs. Here's your gnolls. <laughs> different classes. Different classes. Yeah. You, you never want your orcs and your goblins in the same bowl. Exactly. It just gets it gets gross. <laughs> All right, well, get working on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you guys. And uh, uh, where can people? Uh, obviously, we already talked about where people can find out about Illimap, but where can they find out about uh, uh, Keith? Your projects? Uh, what, what's the best place? So uh, I'm at keithbaker.com, but it's keith-baker.com. Someone uh, who has that KeithBaker.com address. He's like some guy who like travels around and takes pictures or something like that. It's not the children's author Keith Baker who's also out there. Oh, okay. Uh, but but yeah, Keith-Baker.com, and I'm on Twitter at, at HellCowKeith. Next time we speak, I have to figure out what the what the story is behind Hellcow. But what about what about you, oh, Chris? Yeah, no, that, that, I won't tell it now. But I'll also just say that my. Uh, a uh, company website is togetherstudios.com, and that's T-W-O, together. Awesome, Chris. Oh, are you looking for my handles on all my yeah. socials? Yeah, I, where have, can no, I have no idea. I think Mr. Chris Funk. Mr. Chris You're Funk. You're at Mr. Chris Funk on, on Twitter. Yeah, on I Twitter. found you this morning. And then I think Instagram is Critical Funk. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's all I know. Those are my industries. Decemberists.com. How about that? Yeah, Ooh. that's a beautiful site. <laughs> awesome. Well, everybody go check out uh, uh, these fine people and their game they made, Illimat. It's on Kickstarter now. And uh, thank you guys again for coming by. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad we thank finally you. had to do this. Yeah, thanks so much. It was awesome. We'll talk again soon. Okay. All right. That was really great. I'm so glad we finally got to talk to Chris. Yeah, it's Keith. been like a year and a half long project. I know. But it's uh, it's cool. Uh, they're, they're, that game sounds really interesting. But he interesting. got to like design a game in between that time. So like the well, universe was he preventing asked us. Keith to design a game. Well, he got and to I'm sure provided some somebody. feedback. Yeah. It was inspired by their artwork. And their music. And their right. music. Yeah. Which so. I think is a really cool tie. And I have yeah. to go back and listen to that album now. Me too. For the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard it, but I yeah. I have heard parts of it. Yeah, well, it's it sounds really awesome, and uh, even just talking about it made me want to go back and and uh, yeah, uh, get it into my brain pan. Yep, sweet. That was cool. All right, Shelly, where can I already asked where they can we can find them, but where can they find you? Find me on Twitter yes. at Shelly Moo. Yeah. Yes, or find Avalon Hill at Avalon Hill. Two. Electric Boogaloo. Two. Electric Boogaloo. I thought you were going to change that up. You're not going to change it? I might. I was, right. You know, actually weird. I was thinking about this morning. Oh. So I was getting ready for work. Like, how about that Twitter handle? <laughs> like in the shower? Yeah. Like, oh, maybe I should change <laughs> the Twitter handle. Well, am I out of contact cleaner? Should I change my Twitter handle? <laughs> you know. You know, just random, the you know, usual brand thoughts. thoughts. Yeah. yeah. I never stop working, people. I never stop thinking. Working games for you. Uh, you can find me at Greg Tito. Uh, I'm there. You can ask me questions about stuff. I may, in fact, answer. You will. Yes. Um, and of course, you can find out about Dungeons and Dragons at DungeonsandDragons.com. Of course, also on Twitter at Wizards underscore D&D. It's D-N, the letter N-D, because ampersands don't work. Um, and again, I mentioned this at the opening, but if you would like to leave us some ratings and uh, uh, reviews on iTunes and on Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, please do. It always makes people 
um, be able to discover our podcast and uh, learn about this amazing hobby of role-playing games. We have musicians. We've got game designers. Yeah. We've got crazy stuff going on. So, And we take recommendations, awesome. too. We do. We do. We get a lot of those tips on the Twitters yep. uh, uh, yep. for stuff. Uh, so so thank you. Thank you for all that. We and take yeah. your feedback very seriously. Very seriously. So if you have constructively uh, helpful, helpful feedback, it definitely helps. Always yeah. looking out for new ideas for segments and stuff. Yeah. So love it up. Go check out Volo's Guide. It'll be out uh, uh, November 4th in game stores. There's a new cover, uh, or never, not a new cover, but in, uh, a cover yeah. you can only find. Alternative cover. It's alternative, just like the Decemberists. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, a cover you can only find in game stores designed by Hydro 74. It's Super cool. pretty amazing. Um, but, of course, the other color is pretty awesome, too, with a painting painted by Tyler Jacobson, uh, who is an Two amazing awesome artist. awesome artists. Yeah, exactly. So... Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong there. Either. Storm King Thunder is still going strong, uh, of course. And uh, in time walk. for Widow's Halloween, Widow's walk. walk. Make it happen. Go plan your betrayal game nights. Creep out your friends yes. as you betray them Whoa. with a flesh child. Oh, not the flesh child. That's what I'm just. I'm going to end with flesh child. I hate that flesh child. <laughs> All right. See you next week, guys. <laughs> <laughs>